the Lord appointed seventy and sent them out ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whenever you, whatever house you enter, say first, peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. For the labourer deserves to be paid. Do not move from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick who are there, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets, say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. One of the things that the Israel Falau issue brings up for some Christians is a sort of vague sense, and it does for me sometimes, a vague sense of guilt. And that is, even though I disagree with the way Israel Folau is using social media to tell people if they're of a certain category, they're going to go to hell, I don't think that's very good evangelism. I'm pretty sure that's what he's doing. He's sharing the good news. Now, you might disagree with the way he's doing it too. But there is a sense where I kind of feel a little bit guilty because isn't that what all Christians are supposed to do? Isn't that what this text is telling us to do? And at least, even though I disagree with him, he's doing it, but I've felt this most of my life. I kind of sense there's something else I'm supposed to be doing and I'm not really up for it. Not really up to it is the way I should be. That somehow it's supposed to be part of who I am and kind of doesn't feel like that. I don't think I'm up for knocking on doors like the JWs do. Very faithfully and very religiously in every sense of that word. So what can we learn from this text that can help us try to understand what it is that our role is to be? Particularly since it was written so long ago. Well, one of the things we can know is that Jesus sends out 70 or 72, depending on the, the, the different versions of the text. But 70 was the number that the, the ancient Jews considered to be the number of nations in the world. So it, the, the idea that we've got 70 is, I think, the idea that it's global. It's all of us that are being sent out. But there were real problems with the story because it relates to a different place and time. One is that they go from house to house like they're travelling preachers or philosophers, which in the day that this was written is what people did. 
People came into your village as a, a, a travelling teacher, preacher, philosopher, which probably is what Jesus was and has how he was recognised by people as he, as he went around. Not unusual, not like maybe every afternoon, but fairly frequently somebody would turn up and they would be part, they would be a little bit like the kind of Middle Ages, um, the, the travelling minstrel, the wandering minstrel, the person who came and they provided information because most people didn't travel that much, a bit of information about politics, about what was happening in other villages, about what was happening, gossip about what was happening in the royal household, uh, in this case in, in, in Rome. Um, they provided uh, a bit of education. They certainly provided a bit of entertainment. And that was what we, was expected. And the ancient world was full of people that did this. Which is why it says in the text, remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the labourer deserves to be paid. This was not um, something that people did for free, it was just part of the culture. You were expected, a little bit like we do today, if you go into town and somebody's singing and you enjoy it, you're supposed to throw money in. And if, you're, if you don't, you're a bit of a rat. If you don't enjoy it, fine. But if you stand there for 20 minutes and, and enjoy this, and I, I was in a... a, a an outdoor theatre company years ago and we used to have lots of people who did this um, we always got paid we were doing it slightly different but lots of people would stand on the street corner and in, in these big festivals and sometimes they'd make a lot of money and sometimes they wouldn't but we expect that that's the way it's supposed to be and this is the same thing in the ancient world that's why a labourer deserves to be paid it was part of the way things worked and also Jesus says don't take a bag or a staff and a they were the symbols of a particular sort of philosopher called the cynics. We won't go into what the cynics... Cynicism, as we understand it, and the cynics are not quite the same thing. But that was one of the groups of philosophers. So if you turn up with a bag and a staff, people would go, oh, this is what we're in for this week. Just like if you turned up, as Kit's going to play for us in a bit, with a guitar. Okay, I've got a rough idea of what's going to happen, as opposed to when Matthew gets up on the organ. It, you know, the cynics turned up and that's how they looked. So there was this part of the whole world. Well, we don't do that. In fact, we don't even like it when people come and knock on the, our door. Well, I don't. Uh, I never knock on any of your doors unannounced. Listen, I don't think I have. have. I always ring up and say, should we catch up? Can I come around and see you? Maybe we could meet for, at a coffee shop, which for lots of us is a much nicer place to meet, particularly if you think your house is messy, as all of us always do, whether it is or not. We always think it's a mess. So no one should see it, because no one else lives like me. We don't do that, do we? We're kind of a bit suspicious. It's like when somebody rings you up and says, Mr Turley, hello, how are you? First question is, what are you selling? Because if it's something I don't want, we can shut this down really quickly. And it probably is something I don't want, because if I wanted, I would have already gone and got it. And there's another thing, there's a deeply held cultural experience in this world that we don't have, and that's the experience of hospitality to strangers. The only way the, the ancient world worked was if, when you had to go on a journey, and people didn't necessarily do a lot of tourism. Later in the Roman Empire, people, rich, very rich people, uh, members of the royal household usually, started to do a, a thing that looked a little bit like what we would call tourism. But normally people travelled only when they were required to, because it was dangerous and it was uncertain all the time. So when you did have to travel, the only way it would work is if you could rely on the hospitality of strangers. So deep in the cultural DNA of the ancient Near East, and some, to, to some degree still present today, 
is you have to invite strangers in and you have to make them welcome and you have to feed them. Because next time it's going to be you who has to go on a journey and if you don't have that network, nothing's going to survive. I mean, we don't work that way. In fact, probably the only thing we've got a little bit like that might be money. Um, we, We rely on everybody believing the same thing about money. Otherwise it won't work. It's, it's, it's something like that. And it's not discussed much in the text because it's assumed. It's so assumed that it would be like us having a conversation um, about what you're going to do tomorrow and me saying to you, don't forget to wear clothes. Why would I need to say that? It's, it's assumed in our culture that we don't go out into public naked. And we, we don't even have to talk about it. And, and if I did start talking to you about it, you would think it was very strange that I would need to even bring that up. It's, a, it's at that deep level that we've got this whole thing going on. So these people that Jesus sent out, the 70, went into a world that understood what happened when people turned up. So what are we going to do with it? Well, we could look at it this way. Going from house to house, the sign of the travelling philosopher, which is not our way of doing things, Maybe the way Jesus said to him, if you're going to do that, and I want you to do it, because that's the way the normal things work in our culture, don't take a bag and a stuff, don't go credentialed. Don't go hiding behind an official title or a statement. Don't go planned out with it all sorted out, because the people who you will meet need to meet you. Not you prepared, not you organised, not you with a set of statements, just you. You know how, I don't know if this has been your experience, but if you're grieving, particularly if you're grieving from someone who's died suddenly, unexpectedly, often you find people will stay away from you because they don't know what to say. They know that you're overwhelmed And they're overwhelmed too. And they don't know what to say, so they stay away from you. Mostly they think it's because they want to be respectful and they don't know what to say, but mostly it's because they don't want to be powerless and look stupid. So we we think we need to be prepared, we need to be organised, we need to be planned, but we don't. And if you've been in that experience of terrible grief, you don't want anybody to say anything at all. You just want them to be there. You just want them to be there. That's all. Over and over again, people who do my job find themselves sitting with people when that period is finished, walking away, and they're saying, oh, that's been so helpful. And all I've said, if I've said anything at all, is, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, ah. That's all. In fact, when I know I've done the worst job is when I find myself out of embarrassment or out of a sense that I'm supposed to be, I'm the minister, I'm supposed to know things, so I'll start saying something. It's the worst thing so often in that case. Sometimes being helpless is just the right thing. We go unprotected. Jesus says, I'm going to send you out like sheep amongst wolves. Unprotected, unorganised, unplanned, not hiding behind something, just being present. One human being with another human being. Because in the great moments of life, be they tragic or glorious, 
you really aren't going to add much to it by something you say. Someone comes and starts to tell you something glorious that's happened in their life. Your job is to smile and hug them and cry with them in joy and just let them say it. That's what we know all this. I think that's what Jesus is doing. At least one of the things he's doing in this story is just go and just be, just be a person with people. Because you're also going where Jesus is about to go. The Lord appointed 70 and sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town to the places where he intended already to go. And in the, uh, the preamble of the Constitution that we read at the beginning of the service, the Uniting Church is recognising that God was present in this nation, in this land, long before the white fellows turned up. Long before. Long before indigenous people turned up, possibly 60,000 years ago. God was present, because God's present with all creation. So our job is not to sort of tell things. I reckon our job is much more like a national park ranger. I used to, um, when I lived in Darwin, I would sometimes go to, to Kakadu, and the best of the rangers didn't have much to say. Because it's such an extraordinary place. The best job of the ranger is to make sure that the boat, in the wet season particularly, gets around the corner about the time the sun is going to be at just that spot. Get them there and say, look, we're, we're about to go into the, into the Yellow Lagoon and on, along the Yellow River. And, then, and when they get there, shut up. Because it's extraordinary. And if you're not overwhelmed by the gloriousness of it, as you could be stepping out here into the garden or going down the street, if you're not overwhelmed by that, me telling you about it is not going to... Maybe later. Maybe when we're back at the hotel having a coffee and you would say, that flower, the one with the little and the thing and... Ah, yeah, I can tell you a little bit about that because I have some, you know, I'm a national park ranger, I've got some education. Here's a little bit of information, but not too much, just enough. And if you want more, here's some places you can go and look. That's our job, I reckon. Then there's another one. Our deeply held cultural norm of hospitality to strangers, or the ancient one, is not ours. Our deeply held cultural norm is not hospitality. We get by quite by, we think we get well by by ourselves. We think we're okay by ourselves. What's deeply held in our culture, the thing that we hope holds our culture together, is the notion of equality, the idea that we are all one people, all equal. Now, our culture breaks this rule all the time. But we know we're breaking it. So we know when men and women are treated unequally that that's wrong. We know when black fellas and white fellas are treated unequally. We know that's wrong. We know it's wrong when we incarcerate refugees on Manus Island. We know that that's wrong. Because our deeply held up cultural understanding, the thing that holds our culture together, is this idea of equality. So when Jesus says, go to the house and say, peace be with you, peace to this house, and that the kingdom has come near. It's this sense of no, noticing and knowing and living out the equality of us all. That if you go, in, if you are in a place and you, as best as you can, treat every person with dignity and respect, there will be peace. Not absence of war, but peace in the Jewish sense, the idea of shalom, a deep abiding 
sense of rest amongst everyone. I don't need to be anxious and looking over my shoulder. I don't need to be looking out for myself because somebody might steal what I've got or might disrespect me. or what. It's a sense of relaxed joy is basically what shalom means. And it comes from this deep sense of knowing we're equal and we've been brought together. Which is why Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet. If there's no peace there, if there's no welcome there, if, they, if they're willing to disrespect each other to such an extent that they're willing to be prejudiced, to be racially insensitive, to have rules against who can and who can't say and do things, to divide the world up into the haves and the haves-nots, to constantly make it difficult for people to live and to flourish. Just let it go and go where you can. Flourish, go where you can flourish and where you can invite flourishing. Maybe that's what Jesus is saying. Because in the end Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. Well, what's the harvest? I think it's goodness. I think it's joy. I think it's the innateness of being fully human. That's the harvest and it's ripe. Everyone is ripe, ready to be alive and fully growing. You know when you see a kid and they're struggling and you give them a little bit of encouragement, they literally appear to get bigger in front of you. Their chest fills out. They start to realise that somebody has recognised them and enjoyed them and loved them for who they are. Goodness is everywhere, ripe for the picking. And all it needs is ordinary people to turn up as ordinary human beings doing ordinary stuff. And recognise the equality, the dignity and the worth of each of us. There's probably heaps more. In fact, there is heaps more in this reading than that. But that'll do. That'll do for today.